You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Sebastian. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I can't complain. How are you? Doing all right. Yeah. All Thanks right. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. You are Sebastian Strangio, author Correct. of a book we're going to discuss. In the Dragon's Shadow is the title. The subtitle is Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Very interesting book. Uh, published by Yale University Press, but uh, it does not, and I say this as a compliment with all due respect for academics, it does not read like an academic book. Uh, now, maybe one reason is that you're basically a journalist, right? That's correct, yeah. And that's how you uh, got interested in South. East Asia, I guess, in your role as journalist. Did you, did it start off with you moving to uh, Southeast Asia for other reasons or did business bring you there? I mean, you're from Australia, right? Which is in the neighborhood. Yeah, I'm from Australia, despite my accent, which is, um, listeners might detect a bit of an American twang. I mean, my parents grew up in the States and I, um, but they lived here for many years. Mm -hmm. um, I got interested in Southeast Asia. Um, I, I went um, to take a job at um, a newspaper called the Phnom Penh Post in Cambodia. Mm. And I ended up spending eight years living and working in Cambodia as a journalist. So I covered, you know, local um, politics and events, but I also began traveling around the region and um, to many other parts of Southeast Asia, um, particularly um, where, yeah, I worked as a journalist, free, uh, freelance for a good portion of that time. Um, and, you know, a lot of the reporting that went into the writing of this book, I conducted sort of from... 2011 to 2020. That was sort of the that decade. Okay. Um, but yeah, I first came in contact with Southeast Asia from the perspective of a journalist. Uh -huh. And it's it's a really interesting book. For one thing, it uh, turns out that Southeast Asia is kind of a very good vehicle to use for thinking about the broader issues raised by America's evolving relationship with China. You know, kind of kind of all the basic questions, it seems to me, that keep coming up uh, and people keep arguing about who have different views about how we should manage our relationship with China, how menacing China is or isn't, what is or isn't menacing about it, and so on. Mm. You know, these 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 questions come up with Southeast Asia too. Um, mm. And uh, so I want to I want to get into all this. Why don't you start out by telling us uh, what you mean by Southeast Asia? The, uh, you know, I, I think if it hadn't been for the Vietnam War, a lot of Americans would have no idea what you mean when you say Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't even think of it as a neighborhood. I mean, that's certainly the, the first context in which I heard the term Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you're talking about neighborhood kind of much, much broader than the immediate environs of Vietnam, right? Right. I mean, Southeast Asia is a very modern concept. In fact, you mentioned the Vietnam War. It was precisely the Cold War that really created the concept of Southeast Asia. It had been in use previously. The first time it's really, its use becomes prominent is during the Second World War when the Allies had a Southeast Asia command. Of course, it was based in Sri Lanka, then Ceylon. Um, it wasn't based in any part of what we would today recognize as Southeast Asia, but it really is, you know, obviously all of these regions are, like nations themselves, artificial constructs. Um, 
But today, Southeast Asia is, it, it has a generally recognized boundary. I mean, it, it c- consists of 11 nations, um, 10 of which are included within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is a, a regional grouping, sort of akin to the European Union, but a lot looser um, and mm-hmm. more fluid. Um, and, and so, the, I mean, the, I can list the nations. I mean, we've got Vietnam on the mainland part of Southeast Asia that is territorially contiguous with China. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, and Thailand. And then in the maritime region of Southeast Asia, um, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Brunei, and then also um, Timor-Leste or East Timor, which which gained its independence in 2002, which is the one nation that remains outside the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Okay. Um, so, you know, in, in a weird way, Southeast Asia sort of came about as the sort of negative space around other um, between other more firmly defined regions. Um, and, it, and it's taken a little bit of time for the idea of a Southeast Asian identity to emerge, but it has gradually started to emerge because of ASEAN's emergence as a, as a regional bloc. And, um, you know, Southeast Asians beginning to conceive of their nation, uh, their region as, you know, a, a, a positive, concrete, um, cohesive thing rather than simply the space between other uh, more firmly defined regions. And is there that, Kind of regional consciousness to a considerable extent? Uh, a certain extent. I mean, it, it is, again, a very sort of, art, like, what does it mean? Southeast Asia, it is a geographic descriptor. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really, um, it, you know, they're, they're, and the region includes an enormous amount of diversity in terms of political arrangements, social structures, religion, ethnicity. On virtually every metric, it's one of the most diverse regions in the world. And so... You know, um, you know, there are some commonalities. The, his, the, the region's history, post-colonial history and its history of encounter with Western power. We can talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that because that's important um, in relation to China. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are things that bind the region together. I think that governments in the region today have a similar sort of view about how they see um, regional order and the need for, you know, the, the, the ASEAN way of diplomacy, which is all about negotiation and this sort of constant process of diplomatic uh, intercourse. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, it, you know, it is it is a weak sense of um, identity. I don't think you could talk to a, a person in the street in Jakarta or in Bangkok and that they would say, yes, I'm identified as Southeast Asian before Thai. Um, I think in many places, even people would identify yeah, with yeah. their province or region or island in the case of some of the maritime nations, even before the nation. So it is it is a fragile construct. Yeah. Um, let me back up just a little and ask you about the, you know, your, your entry point to all this Cambodia, Mm. which is, uh, such an interesting country because for one thing, something so horrific happened there. Mm. Um, and, and that in turn is connected to, well, ultimately it's connected to China and and it's also connected to kind of you know the 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 entry point of American consciousness to Southeast Asia as I mentioned the Vietnam War uh, sure. like like uh, you know and of course I'm talking about the the uh, Cambodian genocide I mean what like what is it a fourth of the population was murdered by the country's leader or something Yeah it's, it, the estimates vary um, the the figure that's often used is 1.7 million um, out of a population of seven million. So I, I, I think it's around a quarter. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, there's a lot of controversy about those figures, and the, and there's a, there's it spawned a you know voluminous academic debate. Um, 
But, you know, needless to say, it was an absolutely horrific period in the country's history and left an incredibly deep mark on the present. Uh-huh. And uh, so this was uh, Paul Pot. And, and, and are that, how, how uh, tangible is the legacy of that in the country? Well, Cambodia is a very young country now. So, you know, the, the majority of the population is not only born since the end of the Khmer Rouge period in 1979, but since um, the end of the country's civil war, uh, a, a large percentage of the country's population was born since the end of the country's civil war in the late 1990s. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you visit Cambodia today, it's not immediately apparent that this was a country that experienced genocide. I mean, obviously, once you start talking to older people and sort of digging beneath the surface, go out to rural areas and you see... Buddhist pagodas where there are piles of skulls in, encased in um, reliquaries and, and other monuments. Um, it, you know, obviously it, it has left a profound effect. Um, you know, it also, uh, you know, one other effect is that the government that was placed in power after the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge in 1979 is still the government that's in power today. Um, uh -huh. And so the, the, the political legacy of the Khmer Rouge has factored into Cambodian politics in interesting ways. And of course, when it comes to Cambodia's relationship with the United States, this history remains very much alive in the memory of the Cambodian leadership, including Prime Minister Hun Sen, who has been Prime Minister since 1985 and who um, both fought for and against the Khmer Rouge um, uh, and helped to topple them from power in 1979 with the help of the Vietnamese military. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is the, the, the legacy is profound. And it, it um, yeah, as I said, it really does... Um, factor into the very frosty relationship between Tom Penn and Washington um, at the moment. Because we are held responsible for that or? Well, so there's a number of factors. I mean, it's, it's American involvement sort of writ large, right? So America, you know, intervened in Cambodia. There was a large scale carpet bombing campaign, which some people hold to be partially responsible for creating the conditions that allowed the Khmer Rouge to come to power. Um, this was toward the end of our involvement with Vietnam. We were kind of, it was a way to kind of cover our, remind us, like the bombing. Uh, I think this may be the, the, the thing where the Henry Kissinger quote is, uh, get anything that flies to bomb anything that moves. I think that was in reference to Cambodia. Uh, right. Um, William Shawcross's book, um, sideshows is fantastic mm -hmm. on this question. It, it was basically, you know, the, the war had spread into Cambodia. That, you know, um, Vietnamese insurgents were using, um, well, Ho Chi Minh Trail um, went through the eastern provinces of Cambodia, and the Cambodian leader at the time, Prince Norodom Sihanouk, um, in the, you know, who was overthrown in a coup in 1970, um, he he sort of tacitly permitted the the transporting of communist supplies by sea into Cambodia and then into South Vietnam. Um, he was in, obviously in a very difficult position at the time, um, but he figured that the communists would win and that he needed to be on their side. And the supplies were coming ultimately from Russia sometimes and from... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd have to... I mean, I'm not an expert. Yeah, okay, I, we don't need to go too yeah. far, but, but they were... Uh, anyway, I mean, because, you yeah. know, both China and Russia were communists, and I'm a little confused, on, and their relationship changed over the years. But anyway, the... Uh, okay, so so we did this bombing in one of the last gasp attempts, I guess, to, mm. to kind of either salvage the situation in Vietnam or at least kind of slow slow down the inexorable loss as we got out or whatever. And, and, and probably, and, yeah, I was gonna say probably more important from the perspective of the current leadership is what happened after the Khmer Rouge were driven out of power. 
Okay. They, you know, Cambodia was liberated, of course, by the Vietnamese communists. It mm-hmm. was Vietnam, Vietnam and uh, Vietnam, Vietnam's communist movement and the Khmer Rouge had once been sort of fraternal allies. But in the early 1970s, a faction of radical nationalist Cambodians, including Pol Pot, take control of the party. By the time the Khmer Rouge come to power in 1975, they have a very strong anti-Vietnamese animus, which draws on deeper nationalist sort of um, animosities. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and basically, the Vietnamese eventually, you know, decided that they needed to topple them from power, um, and they did so with the help of Cambodian rebels who had defected um, uh, and, uh, you know, who were viewed as still loyal to Vietnam. And so that's the people in the current government um, were, were among those. Um, but after the overthrow, the United States, you know, because Cambodia had been liberated by the Soviet Union's ally, Vietnam, this was, of course, just four years after the ignominious retreat of the U.S. from Saigon mm-hmm. um, and the humiliation of defeat in Vietnam, you know, they um, continued to support the Khmer Rouge as the legitimate government of Cambodia in the United Nations. Um, they led sort of, they whipped the votes in the UN to ensure that that took place. And they, you know, essentially backed a, a diplomatic embargo and sanctions against this new government that was in Cambodia that was backed by Vietnam. And, and this was a period in which the current leader, Hun Sen, came of political age. He, you know, and so what you have a situation where through the 1980s, the U.S. is playing this sort of real politic hardball with the Cambodians and the Vietnamese. Um, uh, this allows the Khmer Rouge to rehabilitate themselves in jungle camps along the Thai border. And a civil war takes place throughout the 1980s. And, and there's the Khmer Rouge and two other non-communist resistance groups that are backed by the West and by the Chinese. Um, and, you know, they wage war against the government in Phnom Penh. And this is the civil war that, that continues through all the way through to the end of the 90s. Um, but you have a situation where at the end of the Cold War, when there's a peace settlement in Cambodia that attempts to end the civil war, you have the United States and all these governments starting to talk about the importance of democracy, the importance of human rights, and to lecture the Cambodian government essentially about these questions. Mm-hmm. After this period in which they made the most squalid moral sort of accommodations with people that were well known by the 1980s who have been involved in these horrific um, horrific crimes in Cambodia during the four years that they were in power. And so the double standards of Western policy toward Cambodia, particularly American policy, is something that is a frequent theme in the complaints of Cambodia's leader um, and continue to bedevil relations between Washington and Trump and today. Okay. I got to ask you one final question about the Cambodian genocide, because I'm so curious before we move on. Um, is it true that, you know, I gather the genocide was part of uh, a campaign against the former ruling elite or something? And I've heard the, the story that they would walk up and hand somebody like a newspaper upside down. And if they knew to turn it right side up, that meant they were literate. So they would kill them. Because because that meant they were educated and part of the ruling class. That sounds like kind of anecdote that could be apocryphal. Have you heard this story? There's all sorts of anecdotes that that are similar to that. You know, mm-hmm. like the knowledge of foreign languages, for instance, is, was seen as a mark of. I mean, in a very real sense, the, the Khmer Rouge armies, the the young the young men that that sort and and women that filled the ranks of this insurgent movement were overwhelmingly rural. You know, young people, Cambodia at the time was an you know, incredibly poor country. Large regions of the country were essentially isolated from, 
from urban life. You know, I mean, the, the infrastructure was so poor in, in Cambodia at the time that you had, you know, young, young people who joined the Khmer Rouge, who were indoctrinated, who had never really seen a city or a town, even, even a provincial town, and were sort of taught to treat people in those areas as parasites and, and who had been living off the, um, you know, the labor of the peasantry. Peasantry, and so, you know, there there was this very strong anti-urban um, sort of uh, tendency in the Khmer Rouge Revolution, which was, you know, um, uh, ironically, the people, the the ideologues at the top were people who had studied in France and knew Paris well, and were very, you know, this is obviously a paradox that we see in many communist revolutions. But, um, uh, you know, there a lot of those sorts of anecdotes. They might seem extreme, but you know, a lot of them are true. I mean, you you hear these stories repeated um, constantly. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that people would, would try to seek to hide their levels of education. It would have to sort of pretend to be mute and pretend to be, you know, a humble, you know, agricultural sort of, um, workers in order to sort of stay safe because the, mm-hmm. the Khmer Rouge extolled the peasant as sort of the highest possible, you know, of the repository of revolutionary consciousness, I suppose. It was sort of like an extreme version of Maoism in that respect. Right. So a lot of your your book is about how China exerts power in the region, how these con- countries um, respond to that. Uh, and Cambodia is related to the one example where in recent times the power has been exerted via actual invasion, the invasion of Vietnam in 1979. That was because by China. That mm. was uh, because Vietnam had, as you, I think, said, deposed the Cambodian regime in the late 70s, and that, had been, that regime had been a client of China's, right? Essentially, yeah. The, the, one, you know, the one sort of foreign partner of note that the Khmer Rouge had during their four years in power was, was China. They got um, all sorts of aid from China, military support. Uh, China built you know, infrastructure in the country during that period. Um, it was otherwise very isolated from the, the rest of the world. But, but China was its sort of one connection. Um, uh-huh. uh, a little bit of support from North Korea, but, but very minor. Um, and um, that's right. You know, the, the, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia Christmas Day, 1978. Um, they overthrew the regime by January 7th and installed their own sort of cadre of Cambodian communists who were Hanoi loyal. Um, and then uh, a, a few weeks later, um, the Chinese Deng Xiaoping announced that he wanted to teach the Vietnamese a lesson. Um, he described Vietnam as the Cuba of Southeast Asia, and he sent his armies in into northern Vietnam for you know a, a, a campaign. I think it was about a month long campaign. Um, actually, the Vietnamese you know um, inflicted sort of quite significant losses on the Chinese invading forces, um, and then they withdrew, having devastated the border areas. Um, it wasn't intended to seize uh, territory in a sort of Ukraine-style scenario. Right. It was more about, as he said, teaching them a lesson, sort of inflicting right, right. some pain, reminding the Vietnamese that, you know, that, that they had to take into account that, you know, um, not to challenge Chinese interests and not to go beyond certain lines. Okay. You know, it sounds like, you know, all Southeast Asian nations have some degree of wariness of Chinese influence. I mean, for all of them, there's this kind of push-pull thing, right? I mean, mm. there's economic engagement, brings benefits. Uh, and of course, Chinese power is not something you want to antagonize. On the other hand, you you worry about domination. And there's some of that for all of them, but it sounds like Vietnam is one of the wariest 
yes. to this day of, of, of China. Now, why is that? It, it isn't just, maybe it is. Is it just the memory of the 79 war and the tension then or what? I mean, in many ways, Vietnamese national identity only makes sense in the context of China. Um, you know, Vietnam, I mean, the official sort of nationalist narrative that you see in the museums in Vietnam and all that is that Vietnam has resisted Chinese invasions for thousands and thousands of years. And that, um, you know, and, and it's, you know, it, its list of victories over Chinese invading forces is, is quite impressive. Um, uh, one thing that they don't emphasize so much is the extent to which Vietnam, the Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese, you know, the Vietnamese state has borrowed from China, how much it's benefited from Chinese military technology, Confucian philosophy, you know, um, Chinese social structure. Um, a lot of these things have been adopted slowly over the centuries, including during periods of uh, actual Chinese occupation of northern Vietnam, um, uh, centuries-long periods. And so, you know, it, the irony at the heart of the Vietnam-China relationship is that, you know, what makes Vietnam so effective at sort of pushing back against China and holding the line is exactly all of the things that is borrowed from China. Um, you know, and so it's, uh, I think, you know, you can explain it by reference to Freud's idea of the narcissism of small differences. I mean, you know, there's so much that they share. Um, mm. You know, Vietnam is, is the most Sinitic nation um, in Southeast Asia, aside from potentially Chinese majority Singapore. Um, and it's sort of, you know, and, and it's crushed right up against China's southern border. Um, and, and of course, the, you know, history has seen a slow southern expansion of China uh, or, or, you know, what we today call China, the various empires that have occupied that territory. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, this has left a very strong mark on Vietnamese national identity. And that's reflected in public attitudes toward China, incredibly hostile um, and suspicious. And Vietnam is also one of the most powerful of Southeast Asian nations, right? In terms of economic yeah, I would cloud say so. and, and yeah, and it's so. the third largest by population, but it, you know its economy is—I can't remember where it, where it fits sits in the economic table. I think it's potentially third or fourth largest economy, but mm -hmm. it's it's incredibly dynamic. It's growing very fast. It's recovered from the COVID pandemic, um, and you know it is a nation with a long history of um, resisting. Um, you know, resisting Chinese, you know, influence and incursion. And so um, I think that it is viewed by many outside um, the region as probably, you know, uh, like American policymakers view Vietnam as sort of, you know, an important bulwark, I suppose, against the expansion of Chinese influence, which explains, uh -huh. of course, the, the flowering um, relations between Washington and Hanoi over the past well, decade or so. Which is kind of ironic. <laughs> I mean, for a couple yeah. of reasons, I... The war being one of them, but also the fact that we purport to be organizing our foreign policy around a kind of democracy versus autocracy frame in right. Vietnam yeah. is I not exact, not exactly a liberal democracy. Right, and this, um, you know, you, you even had, you know, I think Mike Pompeo when he was Secretary of State saying, "You can never trust a communist." You know, he making these sorts of comments, and you know, you just have to wonder how those sorts of things land in Hanoi. And and the reality is, there is, you know, a, a kind of conservative. I don't know if you call it a faction of the Vietnamese Communist Party that still views the United States with a certain degree of mm -hmm. caution. This idea that ultimately the U.S. wants to undermine the communist rule, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, through indirect means, uh, through Facebook and um, Starbucks and American consumer culture, 
you know, and that, that, that ultimately is their goal. Um, they take this rhetoric seriously, even if it's just intended for domestic um, use. Um, but it's very much the case that human rights as a priority in the U.S.-Vietnam relationship has been systematically downgraded for the past two decades. You mean by, by the U.S.? Because, by the because US. Vietnam is such an important uh, right. country to be on good terms with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's no longer... It used to be really prominent. I mean, Vietnam was the nation that defeated the U.S. There was this hangover of resentment about that. And you know, issues like religious freedom in Vietnam were... Um, even like during the Bush era, were, mm -hmm. were much more prominent, you know, in Congress. That it was constantly being mentioned. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's simply, you know, the, the emphasis on human rights does tend to vary depending on our, you know, strategic relationship with a particular country. Um, and that's, Cambodia is the opposite, you know, where human rights and democracy promotion are foregrounded in American policy and have become even more emphasized as Cambodia has drifted toward China. Um, and of course, you know, I would argue that the drift toward China has been precisely a result of um, this, this emphasis, this foregrounding of, of, of human rights issues and um, what the Cambodian government views as sort of this um, condescension and lecturing from the West. Um, but we could, we could talk further about that if you like. Um, I, I definitely want to get into that. Um, I, I want to say, uh, well, first, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, so the Communist Party still runs Vietnam, but, but, but I gather... It's, the situation is kind of like in China, where the name is still Communist Party, but this is not by any means a, a, a thoroughly communist country. They have embraced important parts of capitalism, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be. It's more accurate describe to describe China and Vietnam as Leninist. I mean, they believe in the idea of a a political party that monopolizes um, political authority. Um, and that is the sort of vanguard of society and leads society toward what, you know, socialism, which I guess just means like prosperity and development. Um, it, you know, so it very much is communist in the sense that the, the Vietnamese Communist Party demands a monopoly on control and, and moves quite ruthlessly to, you know, to stamp out any, you know, sign of independent political organization. Um, uh, but you're right that economically they've embraced the market. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's it doesn't make sense to talk about them as communist in the economic sphere anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's sort of a, a weird hybrid of Confucian elements and Leninist um, political structures and um, and free market capitalism. Okay, so America is relatively willing to overlook their human rights abuses because we want them to help counterbalance China, which we say we oppose in large part because of their human rights abuses. So, I mean, and I don't want to dwell on the ironies here, but, but that's kind of mm. the deal there. And I suppose you could, you could defend that uh, by saying, well, but China's a bigger country, so more abuses and so on. And of course, it's also true that we have other issues with China, including the way it throws mm. its weight around the neighborhood. We'll come to that. But mm. let me ask you first, do you think the reason we are less forgiving of the human rights abuses in Cambodia is because they, is it but just because they're a smaller player, they matter less? Or is it just because they've cozied up to China and so now they're more mm. like part of the problem or what? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty complex story. I mean, I think part of it is that Cambodia is viewed as, has long been viewed as, strategically kind of not that important. And so it's a place where we can afford to take a stand on our principles. Um, uh, you know, Myanmar has been described in that way as well. This is a country that's 
it's not really that important. So this is somewhere where we can not make these sordid accommodations. Um, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Cambodia was subject of a, a peace. There was a peace agreement in the early 90s that led to a UN peacekeeping mission. That, and of course, this took place at the end of the Cold War, a, a period of liberal optimism, the end of history, all of that. And that sense of optimism really got sort of um, you know, attached to the way that Cambodia is viewed from the West. There, I think there was also a sense that the world owed Cambodia um, for how the country had suffered and how they would you know, you know, kind of like heal the wounds was by bringing the country democracy and, and, and all of that. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, of course, you know, given the sordid com- accommodations that had been made in the decade previous, this encountered a lot of problems. The, the government that was in power at the time didn't want to go along with it. But to cut a, a long story short, I mean, Cambodia has been viewed as a sort of international project by a lot of Western countries. It's a sort of place where, you know, you, you yeah, like democracy promotion and human rights promotion has been a dominant part of the policy mix in terms of how these countries engage with it. And so, you know, Hun Sen's government has been had has been forced to kind of deal with this. It's been sort of something that they've had to struggle against in order to consolidate their own power and to win elections and so forth. <clears throat> and as soon as China became economically salient and 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 could feasibly um, substitute for Western development money, uh, they were very happy to take Chinese money because the Chinese didn't make these demands about good governance and human rights. They didn't have to go through the theater of presenting the progress they'd made on agreed development benchmarks. The Chinese just said, sure, here's, here's $50 million to build a, a highway. We'll bring our people in. We'll do it. Um, you know, and that looks good on the campaign posters for the CPP, the ruling party in Cambodia. And so you know, it, it, it has been, you know, I think the, the fact that um, democracy promotion has been so prominent in the mix in Cambodia since the early 90s has, you know, has, has created a strong incentive for the government to look to alternative patrons, which of course they've mm-hmm. done. And now that they're close to China, the democracy stuff's being further reinforced and further emphasized as you know, a reason why the US should impose sanctions on Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it, you know, um, it shows the risk, now, I now, think, of, yeah, go on. Are there sanctions now on Cambodia? Are there US sanctions now? There's targeted sanctions on um, key cronies of Hun Sen. Um, okay. And, uh, there's been talk about sort of kicking Cambodia out of the generalized system of preferences for like um, trade, like market access for developing countries. Um, and there's been a lot of like um, congressional uh, resolutions calling on the, the U.S. government to impose harsher sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely on the track toward pariah status from the perspective of Washington. Um, and that's been something you know that's been discussed a lot recently. And, and it sounds like there there are at least two reasons for that. One, it's a dinky state, so we can afford to kind of use it for, I don't want you know virtue signaling at the risk of sounding too cynical. But anyway, it's a dinky. We can do this without paying a big price. A and B. Closer it gets to China, the more appealing it is politically in the U.S. and the more mm. it seems to fit in with a larger project and so on. So it's kind of a self. It's kind of a you know self reinforcing cycle, right? I yeah, mean, really, it really is. And even the efforts of U.S. ambassadors and American officials that are based in Cambodia to try and rebuild some trust are constantly sort of undermined by the activities of Congress, which is, you know, has always been very hawkish on Cambodia, going right mm-hmm. back to the early 90s. And of course, the more, uh, you know, if sanctions start to, in a big way, you know, reduce the strength of economic connections to the U.S., 
that only strengthens the relative pull of China and so on, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty, um, you know, destructive cycle that two countries are, are caught in right now. Now, this general issue of uh, Cambodia, you know, kind of, I gather, resenting our preachiness, th- that's like a general thing in Southeast Asia, I, under- I gather from your book. It's, it's like, yeah. there's, there's kind of, we do a lot of preaching about how you should run your government and how, how you should treat your people. And, and there are definitely a lot of cases where I don't personally approve the way the people are treated, but at any rate, the governments in that region tend to wish that we would shut up. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's you know, um, the broad sort of dynamic. I mean, you've you got to remember about Southeast Asian nations is that, you know, all of, all of these nations bar Thailand were once colonized by Western powers. And, and within living memory, I mean, we're talking about, you know, independence coming in the you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s from, for, for most of the countries. And so, um, you know, the sense of national, you know, that inculcated two things. One is sort of a fierce nationalism. Um, the other is a fierce attachment to the, the norm of national sovereignty. Um, and so nations are very, yeah, they, they get very prickly when they're talked, when they perceive to have been talked down to. Um, and, and, you know, of course, this is one of China's sort of main appeals in the region is that it, it, it will just engage with whoever, and it's not really going to make moral judgments about the particular policies that those governments are making. It will make political judgments about those policies if they are perceived to transgress Chinese interests. But in terms of like how you deal with, you know, running an election or whatever, there's not a lot of, um, mm-hmm. you know, not a lot going on there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this, I think also the fact that these principles are applied, are applied you know, often very unevenly also, you know, is a source of some consternation in the region. Vietnam versus Cambodia being one example, the way we do One example, yeah. yeah. I mean, Cambodia is probably the cardinal example, actually, because it, you know, it is, you know, it is such a small country that, and, and I think they, yeah, they really feel like they want to be treated seriously by the world and not just mm-hmm. seen as a special, you know, case that, that all the other rules don't apply to. And this this thing you mentioned that the history of being colonized uh, leads these countries to a kind of not like being preached to. Not that anybody loves being preached to, but it probably reinforces that reaction. And b to value sovereignty and and really resent encroachment on what they perceive to be their sovereignty. Uh, these these attitudes are shared by China for similar historical reasons. China also sees itself as having been dominated unfairly in the mm-hmm. past by abusive Western overlords, right? Yeah, yeah. You see very similar rhetoric around you know non-interference and national sovereignty. The paradox in the case of China, of course, is that it is a, an incipient imperial power. I mean, it does have right. uh, it does have that superpower sort of status now, and and it does. It almost sort of, on the one hand, it sort of appeals to the global South, including many of the nations of Southeast Asia, as sort of an anti-colonial elder brother that's going to, and of course, you know, China's anti-colonial claims go back to 1949. I mean, it has this, um, you know, its involvement in the Bandung Conference of 1955, the Non-Aligned Conference. I mean, it does have a sort of heritage of of, of that engagement with the global South. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it. So I lost my train of thought, but that's, you know, that's, yeah, you have that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the fact that China is becoming increasingly powerful. It's building up its Navy and its army. It's asserting power into the South China Sea, which brings it into friction with, um, 
you know, for Southeast Asian nations. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a certain tension in how China engages with the region. On the one hand, it is, you know, it's, it's an understanding sort of partner in the attempt to kind of, um, you know, free nations from this sort of Western, the domination of Western models, I suppose you would say. Um, and also, you know, it's seen as a threat in other ways. And so it's kind of, you know, there's this, like you say, a sort of push and pull, constant tension and anguish in, in relations between these two regions. Right. Um, and so it's, yeah, there's pretty profound irony. I mean, I mean, China's on the one hand saying, yes, we share your aversion for similar historical reasons to heavy-handed imperialist imperialism. By the way, we are now a heavy-handed imperialist. And they're heavy-handed in the region, as you know. They, 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 they haven't, you know, there are these disputes about islands. Uh, there's this assertion of what is it? The 10 dash, whatever. There's some, they claim nine dash line. the nine dash line, which uh, has now gone through adjudication uh, in the kind of international tribunal that's appropriate. And China lost. And they, and, and, and they said, no, you can't claim territorial authority this far away from your borders. And, and China said, screw you. Right. Yeah, right. Basically, the, yeah. the, they're rejecting the the rule. So so it's kind of uh you know, it's it's a good example of what people rightly say about America, which is that it preaches rule-based order, uh, and on the other hand, violates the rules. Oh, there's a funny uh quote. What is it? Uh well, it has to do with naval power, but it's like we 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 rule the waves and therefore wave the rules or something. Somebody right. oh, that was about said, the British, I think that was the British Navy, the Royal Navy. Yeah, that was the what was often said about them. Yeah. Now there's another interesting phrase, uh, what's it called? Great power autism, uh, which, you know, and, and of course it's a kind of a, an insensitive phrase. I mean, we, we, you know, uh, the, the, uh, but the point is that, uh, one, uh, characteristic of autism is sometimes, you know, not, uh, not a lot of kind of cognitive empathy, not like uh, deep awareness of how the person on the other side is viewing you, not great sensitivity to that, and and you're saying that there, there's an American version of this. You call this a liberal variant of great state autism. There's mm. a there's a Chinese variant of it, and and uh, again that is manifest in them kind of playing rough in ways we can enumerate. Uh, mm. But but I want to ask you first the question of you know. That phrase makes this sound like uh, a kind of inevitable or highly expectable product of China just becoming, just being a rising power. On the other hand, there are people who note that it seems to have gotten worse around the time that Xi Jinping took over and they attribute it, they might say it's more a contingent fact of his own temperament or aspirations or whatever else uh mm. what's your you know he, you know the wolf warrior diplomacy and and this and that i don't know when exactly that starts but uh what's your view on that to what extent is china kind of throwing its weight around you know just a product of its growing stature and power and to what extent is it uh a product of the, the contingent fact of Xi Jinping being the ruler? I mean, my sense is that it's, you know, it, China is acting in ways that one would expect from a rising power. I mean, if you look, if you look out at Asia from 
from a Chinese vantage point. I mean, it's a very claustrophobic place. You have, you know, American allies, you know, lying like a chain off your, you know, eastern shore. And then you are you have you border countries, nuclear armed countries like Russia and India and Pakistan. Um, and you know, it, it you know, the sense Chinese strategists have always had this sort of fear of being encircled and strangled. And I think that that's um, and obviously Taiwan is a very important sort of node in that sort of net, that chain that they perceive. Um, and I think that, you know, really, you know, given China's reliance on international international trade and access to the global commons, I mean, you know, so the South China Sea, for instance, it's very logical that they would seek, you know, to, if not to control directly, at least to prevent any other country from controlling the sea lanes of communication that go through this region. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are there's, there's a whole lot of bogus nationalistic sort of myth myth that has been woven around China's historic claims to these regions. Um, but I think you know you just got to see it as uh, there's a certain strategic logic to wanting control of these things. The problem in China's case, which you know the United States never really faced to a significant degree, is that it has a lot of powerful neighbors. It's not a country that 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 really can dominate the entire region. I mean, you've got the world's third largest economy, Japan, lying in very close proximity to China, South South Korea, both of them U.S. treaty allies. I mean, even country like the Philippines, you know, it's got a population of more than 100 million people. And, um, you know, and then obviously India is also a player in the maritime sort of world of, of the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think it's a pretty, it's pretty much to be expected. Um, and you know, I don't think it speaks to any particular hunger for military conquest, but I do think that, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the risk of military conflict is, is definitely present a large, in large part because of the security dilemma that, 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 you know, what we perceive as a, as, as a fe- an offensive act they see as defensive and vice versa. Um, right. What are some examples that? of things we see as offensive that they might see as defensive? Well, you know, the militarization of, Islands in the South China Sea, for instance, I think they would um, they would argue that you know that you know that they have you know American ships sailing you know close to their shores, right up in their face. So they would argue that you know you know this this is not something that any self respecting great power can mm-hmm. um, can accept. And of course, the United States wouldn't accept it either. Um, if if uh, um, you know if they came within twelve miles of Los Angeles or something. Yeah, I mean, look, it's actually, you know, the U.S., I don't know, maybe they would accept it, actually. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what I, we do about it. It would, it would be a very interesting uh, consciousness raiser, I think, if we... Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, and then so I think there is, yeah, that's just one sense in which, you know, they, you know, um, or something like the Belt and Road Initiative, right? I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't think that they view it as defensive, but they, you know, it is perceived in the West as this sort of like master plan for world domination. And I think that it's... Mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, a little bit more mundane than that. Um, what, what, are uh, some, what are some examples of Belt and Road in Southeast Asia? I mean, you know, you hear the term a lot uh, and you hear this story about somewhere, supposedly China, um, they helped build a port and in the fine print, it had said, if you can't pay this loan back, we get the port. And so now they have the port. I don't think that's mm, in Southeast Asia. That's though, in right? Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the Sri Lankan case has actually been quite widely misreported. I mean, the, the, the Chinese didn't, basically, the, the Sri Lankan government was so burdened with foreign debt to other foreign debtors 
um, that it it leased this port to a Chinese firm in order to raise money to pay back its debts to others. So it wasn't a case of of of, of a debt for equity swap in the way that it's uh, being depicted. Uh-huh. Um, look, so in Southeast Asia, the Belt and Road takes many forms. I mean. I think it's useful to see the Belt and Road Initiative as sort of a headline announcement that was made before they really knew what it was all about. And so subsequently, Chinese officials have had to sort of like elaborate what is the Belt and Road and fill in the blanks um, a little bit. But you see, you know, I think that um, one thing that predates the Belt and Road um, but has now been subsumed within it is the deepening economic integration between southern China and mainland Southeast Asia, the, the nations that directly sort of border China. Uh-huh. And so the most recent example is a, you know, quite impressive railway um, that's been built from China's Yunnan province into Laos. So it connects the Lao capital, Vientiane, to the, the provincial capital, Yunnan, Kunming. And this is, you know, if you know anything about the, um, the terrain of this region, I mean, it's this incredibly rugged, um, uh, you know, karst terrain, very, um, you know, very difficult to you know, the, the roads are, are horrific and take, you know, and the Chinese have just, you know, basically bored a railway through the mountains and over bridges. Um, and it's, you know, it, it costs about $6 billion. And, you know, there's been questions asked about whether it was really worth it. But that's an example of sort of, you know, connecting China um, to these nations that lie to its south. And that's been something that's been, that's a process that's been ongoing for, for several decades, but has been now under the Belt and Road as sort of, um, and continued to advance. And so you have similar infrastructure projects in Myanmar, which connect China's south, uh, southern provinces to the Indian Ocean that seek like railway, road links, um, mm-hmm. you know, deep sea ports, um, economic zones on the border of China and neighboring countries that are about, you know, promoting trade. So Takes a lot of diff- these are lower tariff zones or something? Yeah, I mean, I'm not even really sure in a lot of cases, but they're kind of, yeah, they often have like a special economic zone sort of in the border region that can then be used for, you know, investment by Chinese firms. And um, yeah, there's a lot of, it, it takes a lot of forms, but a lot of these things were happening prior to the Belt and Road Initiative being announced in 2013. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you know, it's, it's, it is sort of hard to pin down exactly what it is because it's sort of everything and nothing in a way. Um, so and it's actually, actually being... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it's actually being sort of appears to be some people believe that it's being sidelined a little bit in favor of a new initiative called the Global Development Initiative. So we'll see. Huh. And that may just be a rebranding. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Focusing more on development rather than on infrastructure. I mean, you know, it, it remains to be seen. And And is it possible to characterize like generically what? the deal is with Belt and Road Initiative things? Like, does China, as a rule, hope to establish stronger economic ties so that there will be more importing of Chinese goods via these ports and these railroads? And is that part of the deal? Or is there... And then, and then in, you know, and then what the appeal is. I, I assume from the, uh, from the countries themselves, they're getting the, the railroads or the ports or whatever a little more cheaply than the, in the long run than they would if they had to do it themselves. But I don't know. Is that is that is this kind of the basic dynamic? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes the the rates of interest on Chinese loans are actually higher than than um, say the World Bank. Um, on the other hand, the, they can be approved very quickly, and so if you have um, you don't have as many sort of regulatory processes to go mm-hmm. through, and you also don't have the accompanying sort of 
you know, good governance benchmarks that you have to meet. So there is a sort of appeal that Chinese are very good at just getting things going. Um, and, you know, there is a certain appeal there. I think from the Chinese perspective, you know, obviously there's the, the kind of overarching goal of reinforcing China's economic centrality. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it provides alternative, you know, con- economic connections to the world because obviously China is very constrained in the maritime. Re- you know, it's got, there are maritime choke points that could, you know, you know, if they were to be blocked, could really damage the Chinese economy, like the Malacca Strait. Um, all of these other connections westward toward Europe by land and also, you know, access to the Indian Ocean um, give China sort of additional ways of, um, uh, you know, sort of, yeah, sustaining itself economically and increasing its resilience. And then there's simply, you know, the more mundane thing of, you know, China's excess industrial capacity it needs an outlet. So, you know, building infrastructure abroad is a very good way of, you know, um, using those stockpiles of steel and concrete and even stockpiles of labor <laughs> that are that are idle in China and exporting them abroad. And that, you know, there's a certain, China's political economy has made the Built and Road Initiative sort of, you know, um, an attractive way of engaging with the world. Okay. Now, as you suggested, there's the perception in the U.S. that the Belt and Road Initiative is kind of, I don't know, aimed at the juggler of America or something, right? Ultimately, like, right? Like, like there's this goal. I mean, am I exaggerating? Don't you get the sense that some people really, really, and, and I don't know, maybe they're right, but uh, mm. think that, that, the aim a lot of this uh, of a lot of this is to kind of extinguish America. Uh. Well, I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is to you know enhance Chinese prestige and credibility and and ultimately influence. Um, but you know, there is a certain faction in Washington D.C. that anything that China does is automatically viewed in the worst possible light. Whereas if you go to Africa um, or or Asia, for that matter, I mean, you know, you see a lot of governments who are like, actually, you know, we we're a little bit suspicious of the Chinese. We don't really quite by we're not drinking the Kool-Aid, but we, you know, can, you know, they are coming here and actually offering concrete solutions to development challenges that we've had. Um, and when it comes to sort of the debt trap diplomacy, which is a sort of meme that's come about to describe Chinese engagement with the global South, you know, a lot of these countries have plenty of experience with over indebtedness to Western, Western dominated institutions like the World Bank, the IMF. Mm-hmm. They've been subjected to structural adjustment policies going back to the 1960s and 70s. And so the idea that, you know, Chinese economic engagement represents a unique threat is, is I think, quite rightly viewed as absurd in a lot of these places, uh, even if countries are cautious about engaging with China for obvious reasons. Okay. And on this, back to this issue of uh, China kind of throwing its military weight around and, you know, occupying disputed islands, creating islands, uh, asserting, uh, you know, expansive territorial authority in the water. First of all, like what are the main, can you remind us of the main instances of that with respect to Southeast Asian nations? What are the, what are the main, I mean, well, and you can go ahead and throw in Japan and anybody else if you Mm. want, but what, what are the big ones? Well, so in the South China Sea, you know, is really in terms of China's, you know, friction points with Southeast Asia, that's really the main one. And this, the South China Sea is, is contested between China, Taiwan, Taiwan, which, which sort of, almost asserts the same claims as China, um, given that it, you know, its history is having viewed itself as the legitimate government of China for a long period. Um, and then you have uh, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam, and the Philippines. And Indonesia doesn't consider itself an active claimant, but it does have frictions with 
China in, in one small overlapping section of the southern part of the Nine Dash Line that lies within Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. So they're effectively a claimant as well. That's five of the 10 ASEAN nations. Um, and, you know, and this is basically, you know, these, these specks of coral, these reefs in, you know, in the middle of the ocean that, you know, have long been, you know, the, the, there've been disputes over these for, for many years, but have become much sharper um, since 2009, when China submitted the Nine Dash Line officially to a UN commission, um, officially claiming that um, everything that falls within that loop um, as, as, you know, sort of Chinese um, territory or, you know, um, being under China's control. And that um, immediately sort of touched off, um, you know, bilateral tensions with each of these nations to varying degrees. Um, in Vietnam, you know, there actually were skirmishes that, that, you know, that involved in 1974 and 1988, the Chinese actually seizing control of, of islands um, that were occupied in the case of 1974 by, the, by South Vietnam, and then in 1988 um, by, by um, the government of unified Vietnam. And, and that, the latter case involved the killing of Vietnamese personnel. So, right. you know, these things are, um, th there have been sort of skirmishes over these things. Um, more recently, it's been more about China sailing maritime militia vessels and Coast Guard vessels into areas that it claims that are in the exclusive economic zones of other nations. Mm -hmm. And so there's been these sorts of standoffs. The Philippine government is constantly issuing diplomatic protests about Chinese incursions into areas that it claims. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a very complex dispute because there are a lot of overlapping claims, even between Southeast Asian nations. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they have outstanding claims themselves with each other has prevented sort of the creation of a, a united front against China. Um, and, you know, China occupies and has, you know, established a presence on some islands, but so have Southeast Asian nations, obviously much smaller um, uh, facilities given their relative wealth. Um, the Chinese artificial islands are like absolutely um, gargantuan. They're, you know, they have fully functioning airfields and you know, they could be militarized at a moment's notice and they could become, you know, used in a war, um, you know, uh, very easily. And so your view is that basically all of China's shenanigans in the South China Sea and, you know, all, all these things we read about with them throwing their weight around that we view as offensive, China does consider defensive. It, it just that the uh, you know the uh, that it's wise to be cautious and and make sure that uh, I, I mean is it ultimately the U.S. that they worry about that they need to establish this uh, border against or what? Yeah, essentially, I don't think they worry too much about the Philippines. Um, right. I think that they in the case of the Philippines, which is a U.S. treaty ally, I think they view it as essentially. A giant American aircraft carrier, right. and they have a difficulty seeing the Philippines as having its own agency and its own um, national interests that that differ in some respects from the United States. Um, I mean, I think to say that it's purely defensive maybe is giving a little bit too much. I just think that I think that it's it's a predictable and logical move given the anxieties of Chinese strategists and the way that they view the region and the, the, mm -hmm. their fears of Chinese encirclement. Um, you know, and again, it's, it's sort of like the case with Ukraine and, and Russia and NATO expansion. You don't, you know, you have to emphasize that, you know, this isn't about defending what they're doing, but it's just about trying to create some 
you know, to try and fill in some of the thinking that's going into this policy. Um, another factor, of course, and, you know, that has to be taken into consideration is that the, you know, the, the Communist Party in China has committed itself to the notion that these are inalienable parts of China. So it also now has a domestic political reason to dig in and to not to back down. So, of course, right. that domestic um, dynamic makes all of this much more dangerous because it's not something that can easily be negotiated away. Right. Now, uh, we talked about um, the American fear that the Belt and Road Initiative is part of a kind of a global uh, Chinese strategy to, you know, if not, if not uh, destroy America, kind of uh, systematically reduce its influence uh, and ultimately, you know, maybe come close to suffocating it or something. Part of the part of the American fear of China has to do with this idea that it is trying to replicate its model of governance around the world, which is to say autocratic, authoritarian uh, right. But earlier you said that, you know, China is is actually uh, part of its appeal uh, relative to America of some Southeast Asian nations is that it's actually not very judgmental. I mean, it's happy to it's happy to take you as you are so long as it sees you as having a constructive relationship with it. And maybe sometimes that it defines constructive as as subordinate and accommodating because mm. it's the great power. But the point is it sounds like it's really not paying a lot of attention to whether you are authoritarian and autocratic. It, 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 right. it welcomes all nations that can have what it defines as a constructive relationship with it. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's right. I mean, the way I like to conceive it is that China is offering other nations freedom from models, freedom, particularly from Western models. It's saying that, you know, you don't have to, listen to the IMF and the World Bank and the US government and the European Union when they tell you that you must do things this way, that history is ordained, that there is one you know, set of political arrangements that works for every country. Um, it's saying that, you know, look, if you want to adopt the same institutions that we have in China, then I'm sure they wouldn't complain. But I also think that they really, yeah, they're pretty agnostic on the question of, of how countries should organize themselves, so long as, you know, they're pursuing policies that are adjacent to or, or not in opposition with Chinese interests. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one of the problems with this democracy autocracy framing, I think, is that it it flattens, it's a very poor way of representing social, real, like social realities. I mean, there are a lot of countries in Southeast Asia that one would describe as authoritarian in the sense of non-democratic, but that otherwise share very little. I mean, you look at a country like Vietnam and you know, which is a very, has a very strong state and a very strong party. It resembles in many ways the regime in China. And then you look at a country like, well, Cambodia again, you know, um, it's, it's very fluid. It's a personalist dictatorship. Um, power is exercised not through state institutions, but, you know, overwhelmingly through patronage connections between key individuals. The state is very weak. Um, it's also, you know, countries that are democratic in the sense that they have elections also can conceal huge injustices in terms of, you know, disparities of wealth and, and income. I mean, the Philippines is the most dangerous country to be a journalist in Southeast Asia. It's also, a, you know, quite a um, vibrant democracy. Um, it, it's, you know, you know it's, it, it's got huge amounts of corruption. It is in many ways ineffective. The state is in many ways very ineffective at getting things done. And so if you were a poor person in Vietnam versus the Philippines, 
it's kind of an open question as to which system you would prefer, um, mm-hmm. I, I think. And, and I think that it's that the, the division between democracies and autocracies is a lot grayer and a lot more, a lot vaguer than um, a lot of people like to claim. Um, that's not to defend the, you know, the one party rule by any means, but it's sort of, you know, viewing this region, you, you can't just see the, the nations of the region grouped into these convenient, you know, categories. There's a lot of, um, you know, and, and authoritarianism isn't an ideology. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there are many different forms of non-democratic government, um, both in Southeast Asia and the wider world. And I think that the Chinese are simply just very pragmatic about, um, you know, countries' abilities to transition, you know, to sort of liberal democratic rule. And so that instead of pinning their strategic hopes on, you know, this sort of thing happening, they're much more willing just to work with whoever's there. If a country becomes more democratic, then, um, then they'll work with that. Um, if there's a military coup, as in Myanmar, then they'll, you know, um, regrettably uh, work with that reality. Um, and I guess the fear, you know, of all of this is that the more that the West sort of reinforces this division. I mean, you've said this before, I think, um, you know, the more that the Chinese might start to go, well, actually reinforcing these repressive regimes is actually in our interests now because you've got Western countries trying to empower the opposition to these regimes, the democratic opposition. And so you might start to see a, a filtering and a polarization of nations into these mm-hmm. two camps. But I don't think it's inevitable. And I don't think the Chinese particularly care. Um, that's not to say that their engagement with authoritarian or non-democratic regimes is not a bad thing. You know, that they're yeah. in the same way that American engagement with these, with these countries can often have negative impacts. But I just don't think there's a grand design here. I mean, to view, I think many Americans tend to view China in a kind of, as a kind of mirror image of their own self-perception as, as sort of, you know, um, you, you know, America is ultimately about, you know, spreading freedom around the world. And the Chinese are like the opposite of that. They're like the Bond villain you know, to, who's, who's seeking purely to, you know, to, to spread, you know, an evil system around the world. And I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. And we run the risk of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And it seems like there's a couple of dimensions of that self-fulfilling dynamic. I mean, one, as you suggested, is we may give China an incentive to kind of cultivate the authoritarian autocratic elements in a, in a country uh, but we also can give the countries uh, that are authoritarian and autocratic an incentive to move closer to China, right? I mean, if you if you sanction them, if you if you just preach to them and 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 and, and uh, seem to be trying to arouse uh, incipient democratic opposition, you know, through the National Endowment for Democracy, whatever else, mm. I mean you're going to, you may drive them closer to China and then we'll say, see, there is a global network of these authoritarian and autocratic nations, right? But it's, it wouldn't be quite as tight a network if we weren't doing the preaching. Uh, well, right. And, and as I said before about in the case of Cambodia, I mean, my argument is that the reason the country is so close to China, I mean, there's a certain geographic logic too, given its, its situation and its fears of, of Vietnam. Right. There's a sort of logic in having China as a protector and a, a sort of something that can keep the Vietnamese in line. Um, but it's also, you know, a re- reaction to this this sort of democracy building project that that descended on Cambodia in the early 1990s and which continues to condition Western views of the country. 
And so it descended on them from the West, you mean? From, from Yeah, or well, the UN peacekeeping mission that, that uh -huh. came in. But that really initiated a period in which Cambodia was seen as this sort of peace building, democracy building project. Um, that, you know, the country was almost sort of isolated from the mainstream of, of Asian developments in, in a weird sense. Um, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, but yeah, and, it, and I think that that, um, my view is that it is that dynamic that established back then that accounts for the steady move of Cambodia toward China rather than, you know, they just hate freedom. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, the, the, the motivations of the Cambodian leadership are more complex than that. Um, and the, the actions of Western governments are more morally ambiguous than that, um, which I think is true as a whole. I mean, when we talk about this rules-based international order, I think a lot of Southeast Asian nations, there's two, two factors here. I think one is that they don't view China in the same unequivocally negative sense that mm -hmm. many Westerners now view it. And on the other hand, they don't view the United States and its allies in the same, you know, unambiguously positive light that they like to see themselves. And so, you know, these nations have seen, you know, um, American accommodation with dictators in the region. They've seen intervention in Vietnam, incredibly destructive intervention in Vietnam. Um, you know, the, the, you know, I, I don't think, um, you know, they've seen, in, especially in the Muslim parts of Southeast Asia, Indonesia and Malaysia, they've seen the American interventions in the Middle East as something right. that is... You know, that, that's been hugely unpopular in places like Indonesia. Um, and so I think, um, you know, their, their view of both China and the United States is a lot grayer. Um, they, they resist sort of easy binaries um, yeah. when it comes to the, the, the struggle between the two countries. And I think, um, you know, that the desire to sort of maintain a balance and to avoid committing one way or the other is very much how Southeast Asia is trying to navigate this current tension. Um, yeah. You know, rather than seeing, you know, as this sort of grand struggle between world systems and ideologies, they just want to do business and kind of, uh, you know, avoid being sucked in once again to some sort of great power conflict. Um, at the same time, they, the good news about great power conflict is they can play us off of one another, right? Mm. I mean, I mean, yeah, they, I mean we are we are levers. Uh, America, American involvement is a lever they can use against China and vice versa. Yeah, and of course Japan as well. Japan being sort of right the the, the American ally that does the most to sort of compete with China on Chinese the grounds that China is uh, China's strengths. You know, infrastructure. Um, the Japanese build huge amounts of infrastructure in Southeast Asia, and they've um, done so for many years um, and are really a preferred partner in some ways because it doesn't come with some of the same strings attached that, that the Chinese um, investment does. And, and doesn't come with the, with the kind of preachiness you might get from America or the kind of strings you might get yeah. from the IMF? Or, or Well, the Japanese are very thorough when it comes to making sure everything's done very cleanly. They're not into corruption. Um, on the other hand, they, you know, the, the Japanese will, will say that democracy is important, but they're, they're much being, you know, Asian, they're a lot, they don't come out and sort of, they don't um, evangelize. Mm -hmm. I think they're much more pragmatic about the complexity of establishing functioning democracies, you know, and, and, and that this is something that is, cannot simply be willed into existence. Right. Um, and that, yeah, they're much more pragmatic with how they deal with the region. And under um, Shinzo Abe, who, uh, who's the late Shinzo Abe, I mean, they did, they went very far to sort of um, advancing this economic diplomacy and, and really, you know, um, 
they became more pragmatic in how they dealt with the region, including continuing to engage with countries like Myanmar um, that are, um, you know, pariah states now sort of, but, but are, you know, are still, you know, China has a lot of influence and the Japanese are concerned about, you know, losing, <clears throat> you know, ceding this country to, to Chinese influence totally. So, yeah, they've been very pragmatic. Um, and um, yeah, but you're right. The, the Southeast Asian nations have a lot to gain from being courted by um, by various powers. The danger, of course, is that you know decoupling and and um, the potential for actual conflict also weigh on um, economic, you know, the sort of economic future of the region. And um, you know, I think that you know Southeast Asian leaders would prefer if the U.S. and China just settled all their differences and and both sides compromised in order to preserve sort of a an environment that was conducive to you know economic flourishing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's something that either China or the U.S. is willing really to to do at the moment. But um, and so Southeast Asia is being forced to sort of continue with this balancing act. Uh-huh. And by the way, what are the most democratic countries in Southeast Asia? I mean, maybe leaving aside whether they're how liberal, they, mm. you know, whether, you know, I mean, as you said, the Philippines is kind of an illiberal democracy, but a democracy. Um what 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 other countries would would you call democratic in Southeast Asia? Well, I mean, so the you would probably say Indonesia, the Philippines, and Malaysia are like the most democratic, but there are a lot of flaws with these systems. Um, Indonesia's taken an illiberal turn under its current president. Um, you know, the the Philippines obviously under Rodrigo Duterte, and now Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Yeah, very illiberal. I mean, huge amounts of disinformation that that. That played into the last election in the Philippines. Um, uh, Malaysia has sort of, you know, is currently in this state where, you know, they had a quite a remarkable election in 2018, where um, the, the the ruling party UMNO was kicked out of power for the first time since independence. Um, uh, but then two years later, there was some political shenanigans, and and that the government collapsed, and now they're back in power, even though they haven't been elected. And and there's sort of you know that you see sort of like signs of progress. Um, they just jailed their prime minister, a former prime minister in Malaysia, for corruption. Um, uh, but you also see you know there's a lot of shortcomings of Malaysian democracy, and I, it's kind of hard to describe any nation in Southeast Asia as being really, you know, clearly a consolidated democracy. And mm-hmm. and that's it, probably no surprise given that these are young nations that are in many ways still still kind of working out what their national identities are, let alone, um, you know, what political systems, you know, they should have. And I think that, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, look, if you want to say that we have democratic partners, you could describe all these nations as democratic. If you wanted to criticize them for not being democratic enough, you could find things to criticize. Um, But aside from those three nations, I mean, you really don't have a lot more. Thailand has gone through periods of being Mm -hmm. moderately democratic. But now it's it had five years under military rule and now is you know, under a tightly circumscribed political system controlled or backed up by the military and the mm-hmm. and the and the monarchy. So, yeah, I mean it's it's a pretty pretty grim times, honestly. Um, uh, but yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I guess one thing I guess is that the effects of colonialism began a long time ago in, in the region, right? I mean, you've got the Dutch, you've got this, you've got that. Um, and I guess when that starts is a period where there weren't many democracies in the world, period, right? So right. 
I, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, what you might call the indigenous form of governance of these countries, the pre-colonial form of governance is, of course, not democratic, you know. Mm. Uh, and then uh, the colonialism, uh, I don't know, ends at various times in various places, but in, in some places well, pretty recently. It, it creates, I mean, in a lot of countries, colonialism created, you know, ethnic hierarchies, for instance, where they hadn't mm -hmm. existed before. Like in Myanmar, you know, the, the British colonists um, raised up ethnic minorities um, in order to kind of divide and rule and to keep the ethnic Burma or Burman majority down. What happened after independence is that it flipped. The ethnic Burman majority now controls the military and the central organizations of the state. And it's been in a state of constant um, civil war since. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, and, so, and then in, in Malaysia, you had the British bringing in huge numbers of ethnic Chinese and ethnic Indians to work the plantations and the mines. Right. And then that, you know, created a sort of, you know, uh, ethnic, you know, again, a sort of ethnic stratification, which persists to the present in, in Malaysia, where the, the Malays are benefit their majority, but they benefit from um, uh, affirmative action, which, you know, is designed to sort of um, reduce the economic power of the Chinese minority. Uh -huh. um, and that, um, I mean, look, one thing we haven't even spoken about, which is hugely important in terms of Southeast Asian nations' perceptions of China, is China's relationship to ethnic Chinese diasporas in each right. of these countries. And that's something that I think is more of a concern for a lot of Southeast Asians and Southeast Asian governments than, than sort of military invasion by the Chinese Navy or, right. or so, what have you. So somebody called the Chinese the Jews of the East, meaning that, in the, you know, there is a diaspora. They've been uh, economically successful in a number of countries. They are resented in a number mm. of countries and so on, right? Uh, I yeah. mean, so uh, Vietnam, uh, and, and there, have, there have been, you know, uh, reactions against that, the, the mass expulsion of Chinese and so on. Mm. Uh, ethnic Chinese are a majority of, of, in Singapore, right? Mm. Uh, so, exactly, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, so I was just going to say that, you know, that you have a couple of things, you know, China's support for communism, which was sometimes as in the case of Malaya, involved a communist movement that was Chinese majority, because um, the, the, the Malayan Communist Party that fought against the British and then against the, you know, the early uh, Malaysian, Malayan government early on was, um, uh, it was, was dominated by ethnic Chinese. Um, and, and that ultimately explained why it failed, because it didn't have that much purchase in Malay communities and Indian communities, whereas the Vietnamese communists had national legitimacy and they represented or could claim to represent everybody. Um, uh, and, um, and so the application of um, lessons from the Malayan context into the Vietnamese context didn't, didn't play out the way in the same way. Um, you see, so you had that question. And then there's also, you know, China going back to before the People's Republic, the Qing dynasty, the, the, the Republic of China after 1911, you know, both of these governments or states claimed overseas Chinese as citizens on the basis of blood. And so any Chinese living abroad was ultimately a subject of the Chinese empire or the republic. And uh, the communist government inherited this. This is not something that, you know, um, that they originated, this idea that the Chinese state represents all Chinese no matter where they may live or no matter how long they may have lived there. Um, but you know, and then the Chinese government has, has gone, has made efforts to sort of create a division between Chinese citizens and Chinese people with Chinese ethnicity that have foreign citizenship. 
But, you know, as I describe in the book, you know, recently, Xi Jinping has started to sort of blur those lines and create mm-hmm. a to sort of um, try to enlist overseas Chinese communities in Chinese state projects um, and, you know, to kind of garner support from them. Um, and that, you know, is, is a pretty dangerous development because in a lot of parts of Southeast Asia, ethnic Chinese have struggled to be accepted as legitimate members of the nation. Right. And if they have been accepted, it's been a long process mm-hmm. um, of acceptance. And, and for, to be seen as sort of like ultimately puppets of, of the PRC um, is, is, could be potentially very dangerous, um, given yeah, the well, history it's a little, of It's a little like the, the dual loyalty uh, allegation or suspicion that some Jews face. Right. And, that's, and the Jews of the East was the, was the Thai king. Um, who who made that comparison in the early 20th century? Um, um, he was making it, saying that that's bad. You know, Jews are bad, and he was drawing on anti-Semitic tropes then dominant in Europe. But um, that that was there is a lot of similarities, and you know, scholars of of, of diasporas have have studied the the Jews and the, and the Chinese um, it, have done comparative studies between the two because there are a lot of similarities mm-hmm. in how um, you know they relate to the majorities of the nations that they live within. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, listen, it's a really interesting book. It covers a lot. We could talk a long time uh, and we've already talked a fair amount of time. Let me, let me uh, kind of close by asking uh, what, how America, I mean, assuming that you as say you're an American president and you know, you have a kind of a realistic view of of, uh, of of competitive threats posed by China. You know, you're not you you don't uh, misguidedly think that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is, is actually a plan to plant the seeds of autocracy everywhere and ultimately smother America and and uh, send Chinese aircraft carriers over and so on. Uh, but you know, it's uh, there is such a thing as real competition for influence. Um, mm. How should we view Southeast Asian nations? And of course, you you emphasize you know they, these are not monolithic by any means. They're not uh, homogeneous by any means. Uh, at the end of the book, you say that you know the 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 the, the association for Southeast Asian nations is never going to be this extremely cohesive. Thing. They have differing interests, different relationships with China in particular, and so on. But there are certain shared things. I mean, they, they all share some degree of wariness of China. Mm. Uh, I would think that from America's strategic point of view, that's potentially a kind of asset, right? I mean, I mean, if, if mm. you want to, you know, to in a reasonable way counter Chinese influence, keep it from getting out of control, keep it from becoming inimical to your own economic and strategic interests. I would think mm. the wariness of Southeast Asia is an asset. Mm. Um, is, there, is there any kind of generic advice you'd give America about how to think mm. about this? Well, I think that that's, I think that that's true. I think that um, what Southeast Asian nations want from the United States is they do want the U.S. to remain engaged in the region. They do want there to be a counterweight to China, both a security counterweight, which mostly already exists, and an economic counterweight. They want to, they want a balance of foreign relations that gives, that maximizes their autonomy and, and, and reduces the likelihood that they'll be sort of sucked into a vassal-like relationship with any outside power. Um, so I think that, 
I mean, what you say about them all having this sense of threat about China, which is an asset for the US, also has to be balanced against the flip side of proximity, which is that they are incredibly economically entwined with China and that China is really, you know, central to the region's future prosperity. And so any American engagement with the region cannot con be conducted along zero-sum lines. <clears throat> Asking nations to choose one way or the other um, is not going to end well. Um, and I think that there needs, I think basically what the U.S. is lacking in Southeast Asia right now, and I'm not the first person to um, observe this, of course, is, is an economic strategy. I mean, America has been economically engaged in the region. American businesses have manufactured things in Southeast Asia for many years. But, you know, the political economy of the region is now centered on China. I mean, the, China is the leading trade partner, I think, of nine of the 10 ASEAN nations um, and it's becoming increasingly important as an investor in the region. I think it still might be number two to Japan, but um, you know we're talking about and, and influxes of Chinese nationals, expatriates to the region have, have increased. Um, although the zero COVID thing has put pause to that, I'll leave that to one side. Um, the problem in the United States is that while you know the Chinese are involved in you know the RCEP trade agreement, um, uh, uh, you know. U.S. domestic politics is incredibly hostile to um, the idea of free trade agreements. And so taking steps like the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Barack Obama um, negotiated and then that Trump withdrew from on his first day in office, you know, that is not politically feasible anymore for the U.S. to do that. And so what they've done instead is come up with this thing called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is sort of like Trump trying to have a trade deal without having a trade deal. I mean, it 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 sort of it is premised on sort of partnerships for you know like resilient supply chains and for economic and environmental and social um, standards and those sorts of things, but it really doesn't offer anything in terms of market access because that's politically poisonous. And so economic engagement really is, I think, the vacuum at the heart of American policy towards Southeast Asia right now. And offering Southeast Asian nations like a meaningful economic sort of lure, um, I think makes sense. Um, it, but it's not, it's something that's incredibly challenging right now. Um, even Feigenbaum, who works for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I think it's called. Yep. I mean, he has a phrase, he says, you know, Asia is about um, addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. And so I think that trying to kind of pull down the Chinese and sort of take shots at what they're doing and criticize what they're doing is bad or evil or whatever, isn't really going to get the US anywhere. There needs to be a positive um, vision for um you know, the region that, that is, you know, that takes into account how Southeast Asian nations view the world and what their priorities are. Um, you know, they're not always going to line up with what American priorities are, but, you know, you, you need to work with the realities that are there. And I think that um, the desire for of these countries to sort of secure their economic futures is, you know, that that's a lot of leaders in the region. That's what they're most concerned about. Their legitimacy, if they're not a fully democratically elected leader, often depends on that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that would be my broad advice. But this is something that people in the State Department are already aware of. I just think that they are encountering too many political headwinds at home to make it to make this sort of approach feasible. And some of them, the, their own administration is probably creating. But uh, right, uh, you know, COVID and Trump, COVID plus Trump was a was a real turning point. It seems to me, um, uh, with respect to relations with China. And then, and, 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 uh, well, and maybe both, but certainly Trump, uh, with respect to, uh, free trade issues, 
more broadly. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, one other element of the Trump era has sort of this, this backward-looking sort of idealization of the past, I think, in the U.S., that people cl- tried to cling on to what was in, in the wake of the shock of Trump's victory. You know, there was this sense of trying to you know, um, idealize what had come before. So this is when you really see the international liberal order and the rules-based international order start to be talked about in a really widespread way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this backward idealization of American, you know, and I think that that constant looking backwards to replaying of the greatest hits has it's really characterized American, um, you know, foreign policy over the last six years. And, and maybe, you know, the, the, the broader advice is, is to have sort of a more forward-looking policy that tries to create something new rather than simply sort of you know, talking about, you know, restaging the Cold War and, and, and dusting off all those old analogies and all that old rhetoric. Um, because, you know, it is, it is a different world and um, a much more, arguably, much more complex world. Um, yeah. Okay, well, uh, the book is in the Dragon Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. I recommend it. And where, where can people go to find your, on your kind of day-to-day journalistic so, work? So I, um, I work for a magazine called The Diplomat. I'm the Southeast Asia editor. And so we're at thediplomat.com. Um, I also tweet, you know, I'm not super active on Twitter. I find that it, uh, it's sort of like uncompensated labor <laughs> a of, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But um, I'm at, at SStrangio, um, S-S-T-R-A-N-G-I-O on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I mean, my books are available from, you know, all the usual outlets. And um, uh, yeah, people can check them out. Okay, and I am at Robert Ryder on Twitter as long as we're talking about things like that. Well, thanks for taking the time. What time is it in Australia right now? Uh, 10.30 in the morning. 10.30 in the morning, okay. Well, it's 9 p.m. here, so uh, I should, I don't know, do whatever it is I'm supposed to do at this time of night. But thanks so much. I really enjoyed the book, and uh, and, and we'll keep an eye on your work. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.